You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. With the palms of his hands, Dee Dee Palmer traced the length of Harvey Lillard's spine for things unseen. He had an idea of what he might be looking for, though. Harvey lay prone on the table, game for this experiment. For years now, he had been living with hearing loss. Harvey's existence had become muffled, his experience of the world folding in on itself. He had long ago given up seeking treatment. But Palmer, an eccentric and electrified character, thought he could fix this once and for all. This moment would put all of the things he had been learning to the test. Palmer believed that a kink in the spine was blocking the nerves that controlled Harvey's inner ear. Locating a lump between Harvey's shoulder blades, Palmer pressed downward to rack the displaced vertebra back into line. It popped. At once, Harvey could hear again. So went the laying of hands. This moment is remembered as the first chiropractic adjustment. The year was 1895. And with just a few pounds of pressure, Palmer's world radically changed forever. He was something of a healer. He had long worked in the realm of animal magnetism, a belief that a being's energetic forces could be manipulated for healing purposes. Today, we might think of this science as a little fringe, but back then, we just knew less. The medical field was a lot less professionalized. At this time, as medical schools were opening up and doctoring was becoming an exclusive, expensive club and thus a bastion of the elite, the field was made up of dangerous experiments and body snatching. Doctors often liked knives and they liked drugs. It was common for doctors to bleed patients, believing it was curative. They prescribed things like opium, mercury, radium, and belladonna. Without full anatomy training, surgeries could be crude, hurting more than they helped. 
Palmer wanted a more gentle alternative that required no butchering. He sought out guidance not from those in the establishment, but from those in the grave. This, dear listeners, is a ghost story. Palmer was one of many people who recently had begun talking to spirits. Palmer was a staunch spiritualist, a popular religious movement that sought connection with the dead. Think seances and Ouija boards. And it was at the Mississippi Valley Spiritualists Camp Meeting in Clinton, Iowa, that he first claimed to have made contact with Dr. Jim Atkinson. Jim, Palmer claimed, taught him about an ancient Egyptian practice of fixing displaced vertebra, and how it was necessary to maintain a healthy body and mind. But could it be true? Was Jim a figment of Palmer's imagination, a product of a stellar PR campaign, or something more? Scholars have never been able to locate a Dr. Jim Atkinson, but we know Palmer had met a traveling Dr. William Atkinson once upon time, many years ago, in the very mortal plain of Iowa. By now, this Dr. Atkinson was probably long dead, but perhaps their relationship lived on. Palmer was alone in his revelations, but he didn't intend for it to be that way for long. He started treating all kinds of ailments through spinal manipulations, and it seemed to work. He wanted to establish not just a new school of thought, but a whole new religion. Think Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science or Joseph Smith of Mormonism. Palmer had designs of being at the helm, a prophet, miracle man, and healer. History tells us that it didn't quite work out that way. It turns out that people thought he was a bit unhinged, and he was later murdered by his own son. But while Palmer wasn't long for this world, he did gather quite a flock, and created, through some pretty impressive marketing, what's now a $15 billion a year chiropractic industry. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Their faces were crusted in dust, and they sweltered in the damp heat. Their carriages slouched onwards, bouncing and bobbling over the crude Kentucky roads. The seekers headed onward, all believing that this revival was going to be something grand. The human condition is dominated by suffering and the quest to alleviate it. Across the globe and across time, people have sought healing, often through blind faith. History tells of magical springs, blessed talismans, holy temples, long pilgrimages, and the laying of hands. The Bible tells of blind men seeing, lame men walking, and deaf men hearing. And, for those reasons, the Cane Ridge Communion was about to become one of the most reported-on events in American history. The first five days of August of 1801 were a flash mob of evangelicalism, with tens of thousands of practitioners gathered in contrition. Here, they prayed, preached, and wept in what looked more like Woodstock than most church services. According to one historian, it was the most impactful religious gathering the country had ever seen. Hearts were on fire, and hunger for a new way of thinking about salvation was reaching a fever pitch. The Second Great Awakening had arrived. It was a time of healing. And that's what these seekers were most interested in. This movement took a more optimistic view of being human, suggesting that people could take their salvation into their own hands. 
From these beliefs sprung riotous revivals and a roster of self-styled prophets and preachers. Some of these religious people, it so happens, had a crossover role in their community, that of the doctor. Now, the intentions of doctors were often good, but sometimes patients would have been better off going to no doctor at all. The spiritualists offered a solution. They recognized a collective urgency and potentially their very unique ability to help absolve people of their suffering with no knives or needles required. Through their seances and Ouija boards, spiritualists sought guidance from the spirit world. And with so many people skeptical of the newly installed medical establishment, it was only a matter of time before they began to seek health advice from the other side. Medical mediums began to appear throughout the country. They insisted that every person had a direct line to the divine. They saw no need for clergy. In the same way, spiritualists believed people could heal themselves without the intervention of a professional. Typically, they would offer homeopathic remedies, the laying of hands, and a variety of non-invasive prescriptive measures from the spirit realm. These mediums could often be found listed in city directories, advertising in trade magazines, and taking clients by mail order. It was a brisk business. And here, we set the stage for a young boy who'd be born in Christian County, Kentucky, 77 years later, and some miles from the Cane Ridge Revival. He would inherit the legacy of this land and of its culture. Born on a farm, he would become a reluctant prophet. Edgar was consumed by nerves. He felt that he didn't know the first thing about medicine and doctoring, and he found it worrisome that people kept coming to him for help. What if he accidentally hurt someone? How could he live with himself? But strange things had been happening, strange and wonderful things, and he had decided to lean into it. With those memories in mind, Edgar Casey laid back and fell asleep. But he wasn't lying on the couch to rest, nor to dream. This was all part of his day's work. His face relaxed, his breathing slowed, and his eyelids began to flicker. His small audience glanced at each other. They waited. And then Edgar began speaking with commanding authority. C.H. Dietrich and his wife's jaws dropped. Here was a man they had heard talk about, a healer who they hoped would help their sick daughter when every doctor had failed. They watched and listened, while Edgar's colleague, Al C. Lane, scribbled furiously nearby. But how Edgar made it to this very moment here on this couch is quite an unusual story. He had been a quiet, sweet boy, raised righteously in the countryside of Kentucky. His family grew tobacco, and he had a deep love for the land and everything it gave him. He was seven before he went to school, but had been brought up on a diet of hard work and the Bible. And once he got a Bible of his own, he committed himself to reading it once a year for as long as he lived. He thought he would become a preacher. One day, when he was 13, he brought his Bible into the woods. It was here, according to his telling, that an angel took him by surprise. Her light was bright, and her voice soft and clear. She said, Your prayers have been heard. Tell me what you want most of all, and I'll give it to you. 
he was stunned and lost his words. But as he would later report, he told her that he wanted to be helpful to others, especially sick children. And hearing that, she was gone. Edgar quickly made his way home. He had long been able to see and talk to people who others couldn't, but this was the first time he felt scared. It was soon after that he noticed things change, quietly at first. If we believe it to be true, his direct line to the divine had been activated. The angel gave him an uncanny ability to memorize books from front to back in his sleep as long as they were put under his pillow. This helped him get through the few years of schooling he had left and avoid the belt of his father. Edgar would grow into a man with sundry jobs, bookseller, salesman, insurance agent, photographer. In 1900, he suffered from severe headaches and a case of laryngitis that doctors couldn't cure. The months trickled on. No specialist proved helpful. Because he could barely speak, he had to leave his job. He wondered if he was being punished for not being helpful, as he told the angel he wished he could. It was then he decided to go out on a limb. A famous traveling hypnotist was coming through town. At that time, some claimed that hypnotism was the future of medicine, suggesting that the subconscious mind could be manipulated into healing the body. However, this fellow was more showman than anything, and Edgar left disappointed, though with an idea. Edgar's town of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, had its own resident hypnotist, and wanting to exhaust all options, Edgar sought his counsel. Edgar explained to Al C. Lane that he thought if he put himself to sleep, just like he had when he would sleep atop his books all those years ago, and Lane were to then talk with him, maybe they could get somewhere. A strange thing had happened once when he was a teenager. He had hurt his spine and fell into a stupor. It was when he finally fell asleep that he called his parents in and told them what he needed for a cure. They listened, and it worked. He had no memory of the event, but if only he could replicate that moment, perhaps he could heal himself once again. With Edgar's parents gathered around, he appeared to fall asleep, and Lane began to speak softly. He suggested that Edgar scan his body and figure out where things were going wrong. Edgar cleared his throat, and in a voice clear as crystal, he began to speak. He spoke of nerve strain and broken vocal cords, and of a need for better circulation. His chest and throat began to turn pink, then burned a bright, hot red. Minutes passed. Then Edgar spoke aloud once again, confirming that his affliction had been healed. He then directed Lane to gently wake him. Edgar began to stir. He opened his eyes. He coughed. He began to talk loudly, clearly. His mother turned and began to cry. It left everyone wondering, if Edgar could heal himself, could he do the same for others? And so began what one might consider one of the most unique partnerships that side of the Mississippi had ever seen. Al, a budding osteopath, recognized Edgar as something special. Though he had only been to school through the eighth grade, Edgar seemed to have a vast working knowledge of the body that was inaccessible during his waking hours. Edgar couldn't explain it, and it made him deeply uncomfortable. 
But the more experiments they did together, and the more readings they transcribed, it became clear that he was being presented with a real opportunity to help those in need. So, this is how the Dietrichs appeared by his side. When Edgar awoke, the Dietrichs were in tears. In his sleep, Edgar had suggested that Al make some spinal adjustments on their small daughter, and shortly thereafter, she was healed. Edgar refused to take money for any of this. It's reported that many patients improved under his suggestions for treatment, and word of his strange knowing began to spread. Still, he remained conflicted about these powers. What if they weren't from God, but from the devil? How would he be able to tell? Was he being tricked? But he saw that something was working, and he was encouraged by the people around him to continue on. And one of those people, an osteopath by the name of Wesley Ketchum, was so encouraged by his work that he, without Edgar's knowledge, presented a study of Edgar's readings at a conference in Chicago. The New York Times picked up the story and soon ran a headline that read, A literate man becomes a doctor when hypnotized. Whether he liked it or not, Edgar had arrived. And whether he could have anticipated what was yet to come is anyone's guess. Many eyes fell on Edgar during those years. Doctors studied him. Newspapers wrote about him. The letters started pouring in from all over the world. After the New York Times piece, Edgar started giving medical readings on a daily basis. He cut a bargain with his osteopath colleagues, asking not to be paid for his counsel, but rather that they rent him a space to both house an office and a photography studio of his very own. He would keep his day job with his camera, and work in conjunction with them otherwise. His wife, Gertrude, loved him mightily, but was still nervous about his readings. She preferred not to know too much, and was happy that Edgar also kept a normal line of work. But when she almost died of tuberculosis, and their son, Hugh Lynn, accidentally blinded himself with flash powder, she allowed Edgar to step in for the first time. Asleep, he prescribed his wife vapors from a brandy barrel, to his son, eye dressings of tannic acid. Both times, doctors shot Edgar's suggestions down. But when the doctors were proven wrong, and her husband was proven right, Gertrude was a skeptic no more. But that didn't mean she had to like the company he kept. She was eventually right about that one. Edgar and his colleagues would soon part ways, due to misappropriated funds. Edgar's moral compass was firm, and he would never be in business with those who took advantage of others. When letters arrived with money, he would be sure to send it back, with his reading enclosed. His readings, first inscribed by Al, and then by a young woman named Gladys Davis, often described homegrown homeopathic remedies that were easily accessible to most. Poultices, vapors, concoctions of roots and herbs. He prescribed spinal manipulations, sweating, and meditation. He cautioned people against red meats, fried foods, carbonated beverages, and too much sugar. He told them to drink more water and to rest. These suggestions were largely inoffensive and pretty harmless. What was there to lose in listening to him? 
Soon, people began to come to him, asking him to give them readings on the stock market to find buried treasure and oil. For Edgar, this felt foolish. He tried to fulfill some of these requests, but was never successful. 1923 was both the midpoint and the turning point for Edgar's career. It was here that he met Arthur Lammers, a devout practitioner of a new religion called Theosophy. It's a belief system that finds its roots in Hinduism, Buddhism, and the supernatural, leaning heavily into the ideas of a mystical god and reincarnation. In Edgar's day, this was cutting-edge stuff, originating in the U.S. in the latter part of the 1800s, right around the same time that spiritualism took hold. Arthur took an interest in Edgar, and in him saw some untapped potential. They decided to do a reading. It was there, for the first time, that Edgar looked not forwards with suggestions on how to live a healthy life, but backwards. Edgar told Arthur that he had once been a monk, it was a simple suggestion to Arthur, but one that would change the entire nature of Edgar's work. There was something here, he believed, in needing to understand our past selves in order to live with our present one. For the next 20 years, Edgar addressed the issue of reincarnation in his readings over 2,000 times. Asleep, he spoke to the quality of his patient's mind, body, and soul, and gave insight about their life's purpose. He developed theories around life's daily challenges, the idea of karma, and the soul's recycling and return. He was prescriptive about how to move through the world, and how to engage with and respond to suffering. He spoke of self-development, growth, and service, always turning his attention to a higher power. He claimed to have access to a compendium of all universal thoughts, events, emotions, and intent to have ever occurred across time and planes. He wanted to, according to him, make manifest the love of God and love of man. He had his followers, and he had his detractors. Some of these suggestions of his, his stories, were fantastical and unpalatable to the general public. But Edgar continued to work. He eventually opened up a university and a hospital, and founded an organization to be a repository for his life's work, over 14,000 readings in all. The at-first reluctant sleeping prophet had come into his own. As he got older, his health began to fail. He was warned to do no more than two readings a day, but the letters kept coming. He couldn't give up on healing others, but he was unable to heal himself. He died at home on January 3rd of 1945, at the age of 67, in sleepy Virginia Beach. Edgar Cayce's memory is a controversial one. Was he a fraud, capitalizing on folk remedies and enabled by money-hungry friends? There's been little study and little way to verify his claims of cure. We can assume that the choice to write to Edgar was often a last resort for someone when the medical establishment had otherwise failed. It was free or low cost, so what harm could come from trying? And most maladies he addressed, well, they were probably fairly simple fixes. And if they weren't and his advice didn't work, we all know that dead men tell no tales. 
That's all to say, it's reasonable to be skeptical of these big claims. And skeptics he's long had. Maybe he was just a savvy observer of the world and engineered a very unique way to convey his message. He's often criticized and remembered for the things he got wrong, spectacularly wrong. He believed that there were five distinct races of people, predicted Armageddon to come in 1999, that Japan would disappear into the sea, the emptying of the Great Lakes into the Gulf of Mexico, and Atlantis rising up from the sea. The list goes on. But there are things that he did get right. It's reported that he predicted the stock market crash of 1929, Hitler's rise to power, the deaths of FDR and JFK, and the fall of the Soviet Union. Even today, his card-carrying followers number in the tens of thousands. The whole research institutes are dedicated to studying psychic phenomena. Edgar, should you believe in his psychic abilities or not, seemingly had a strong moral compass and grasp on how to live lovingly and ethically. This is the important thing that gets lost in the argument around his potential fraudulence. Unlike Mary Baker Eddy, Joseph Smith, or Dee Dee Palmer, he never wanted to lead a movement. He never exploited the people who sought his help for money or power or prestige. But his teachings became the blueprint for the Aquarian Age, and we still feel them today in how we think about health, how we consider alternative medicine, and what color crystals we buy, if you're into that kind of thing. More than anything, he was a holistic healthcare practitioner, with some good claims and some bad. He wasn't the first, and won't be the last. Though Edgar has been gone for some time, we continue to feel his presence. And there's some thought that we haven't seen the last of him yet. After all, he predicted his own return. In his last reading, he awoke from his dreaming and said, I had been born again in 2158 AD in Nebraska. The sea apparently covered all of the western part of the country, as the city where I lived was on the coast. The family name was a strange one. At an early age as a child, I declared myself to be Edgar Cayce, who had lived 200 years before. Scientists, men with long beards, little hair, and thick glasses, were called in to observe me. They decided to visit the places where I said I had been born, lived, and worked in Kentucky, Alabama, New York, Michigan, and Virginia. And taking me with them, the group of scientists visited these places in a long, cigar-shaped, metal-flying ship which moved at high speed. Water covered part of Alabama. A Norfolk, Virginia had become an immense seaport. New York had been destroyed either by war or an earthquake and was being rebuilt. Industries were scattered over the countryside. Most of the houses were of glass. Will all of this come to pass? Only time will tell. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. 
At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't get distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The healing springs were well known, and people came to bathe in their powers. In the corner of what's now northwest Arkansas, their mythology stretches back millennia. And by the turn of the 20th century, that mythology began to make people money. The town of Eureka Springs sprung up, a place for pleasure, a mountain getaway where the wealthy could soak away their ailments. When Norman Baker arrived, all decked out head-to-toe in his purple suit. He had been many things. A vaudeville magician, a mail-order art school teacher, a radio host, and a small-town political pundit. Recently, he had taken up cancer curing. It was 1937, and he had designs on taking over the old, dilapidated Crescent Hotel. At one time, it had been the grandest resort in the Ozarks, but had recently been sitting empty, lonely, and rotting. Norman had an idea, a vision for the place, and a burning desire to keep himself in business. So he sloshed on some fresh purple paint and tidied the inside. He painted the walls a deeply brooding technicolor, all somber shades of red, orange, yellow, and black. He created himself an office, complete with bulletproof glass and machine guns. Norman was a bit paranoid, you see, fearful that the American Medical Association was going to come for him. He didn't practice by the book, exactly. He wasn't even a doctor. But he called himself a healer, and people paid big money for his cures. What he really was, though, was a quack. He started advertising his new hospital over the radio and through mailings. He called for volunteers to come receive treatment. He promised to do things that the medical establishment couldn't. Norman concocted a set of injections, which he mysteriously called Secret Remedy Number 5. It was designed, he said, to eat away at the cancer, and the cancer only. He considered surgeons to be barbarians and promised his patients relief from their knives. He made vats of this stuff, a mix of glycerin, carbolic acid, alcohol, watermelon seeds, brown corn silk, and clover leaves. 
he created caustic herbal pastes and prescribed laxatives, douches, vitamins, and diet regimens. But it wasn't long before whispers began to spread through town. High up on the hill, people knew something wasn't quite right. People went to the Baker Hospital to find a cure, but often found only death. It took years for the American Medical Association and federal authorities to put an end to Norman's snake oil ways, but not before he had embezzled millions of dollars from his patients, who often didn't live through the experience. He was jailed for a year, but in the end, wasn't long for this world. Shortly after his release, he died from cirrhosis. The irony that his body had been poisoned is not lost here, but the only person to blame was himself. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Robin Miniter, researched by Robin Miniter, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.